Good morning. Feel free to grab your favorite seat. If you guys, if you're visiting with us, uh, my name is Mike Berry. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone, and it's my privilege to bring the word this morning. As Pastor Carlos indicated, there are some discussion questions here for our care groups. And make sure you guys try the family feud icebreaker this afternoon whenever your your care group meets. It's I spent a lot of time on that, so I'd like to see it get used. We'll open up to John 17. Um, we are going to read this section of scripture and then pray before we uh, jump into the, the message. John 17, I'm reading from a New King James Version. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given them your words, which you have given me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be in one just as we are one. 
I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and that you have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also may, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's go ahead and bow in prayer. Father, may your name be hallowed this morning as your word is preached, heard, believed, and obeyed. May your son be lifted up in our midst, and may your spirit enlighten our eyes and feed our souls with that which our hearts long for. You have the words of eternal life. Where else shall we go? Where else would we rather be but in your presence this morning? We know our prayers are heard by you because of the access we have through your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. All God's people said, Amen. This morning, uh, I'm preaching a sermon that we've titled, I Pray for Them. It's the second part in a series that we've called Jesus Prayed. When my daughter Anna was six years old, her mother took her swimming to the Vessies' home, Tom and Mary Vessie. I don't know how many of you remember them. And while Katie was conversing poolside with Mary, Anna had taken off her floaties uh, because she was in the shallow end. However, when her brother and cousin moved to the other side of the pool, she tried to go with them, not realizing the depth of the water she had moved into, and she began to sink, to sink. And she came up for breath, and she sank again several times, and it seemed to her like an eternity. She wanted to scream and cry out, but she just couldn't get the breath uh, to do so. When Katie realized what was going on, she leapt into the pool, clothes and all, and embraced Anna and took her to safety. Anna's six-year-old heart went from terror to an overwhelming sense of safety and security. And what no one knew at this point was that Katie was pregnant with Sam. So Sam gets the assist on that one. (laughs) This was his first heroic act. Anna learned some valuable lessons that day about keeping on your floaties, about the depth of the deep end, and about the strength of her mother. But I want to just ask all of us in this room this morning, do we understand the dangers that lurk about us daily? Jesus does. If our eyes could just be open for a moment, we would see that we, were, we are all in the deep end of the pool every day. We are in this thing that Jesus calls the world that we see in our text this morning. And the world is the environment we are in, and it is not neutral. 
It seeks to suck us under, to swallow us up. Not only that, there's a devil that wants to grab us by the neck and thrust us downward. Not only that, but there is in us a remaining sickness that for some reason is actually attracted to the bottom of the pool. We sometimes want to take off our floaties and go it alone. Um, If we could see the constant danger that we are in, we would have a greater appreciation for Christ's prayer for us. And we would find ourselves crying out to him moment by moment. Jesus did not leave his disciples alone without safety. And he does not leave you or I alone, believer, without the secure embrace of himself and his father. The night before Jesus's death on the cross, he articulated the prayer that we are studying, a prayer to his father. And he prayed this prayer within earshot of his 11 disciples, a prayer, no doubt, that would provide them safety and support needed in the days ahead of them. This morning, we will examine Christ's request for these disciples and how their redemption is really wrapped up in intertrinitarian love and glory. Last time we covered verses 1 to 8, and it was just basically one request that Christ makes, glorify your son. Uh, Would you lift up your son as he proceeds to the cross that he may glorify you? Um, This morning, we're going to consider the fact that Christ says, I pray for them. That is the 11 disciples. We're going to look at what he particularly prays for. And then on April 7th, We're going to come back to the rest of the chapter where Jesus says, I pray for those who will believe. So for this morning, we're just looking at the section, I pray for them, verses 9 to 19, where uh, the son articulates again a prayer to his father in the full hearing of his disciples that no doubt provides them safety and support in the days ahead, uh, vitally needed. We're going to uh, survey um, uh, this particular section of Scripture by asking five questions. And the first of those questions is this. For whom does the Son pray? And let's look at verse 9 together. For whom does the Son pray? Jesus says, I pray for who? Them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. For whom does the son pray? He prays for them. Who is the them? Uh, At this point, we are going to get to us, Brian. That'll be in verse 20. Um, And by implication, he is praying for us. But in the context, he's praying for the 11. Uh, Judas has already dismissed himself. He never heard this prayer. And so the them is his disciples. In fact, how does Christ further delineate the them in the rest of the verse? He says, I do. I I pray for them, for those whom you have given me. So the them is a group of people that have been given to the son by the father. And we talked a little bit about this last time in our last message. Uh, If you were to look at verses six. 2, 11, 12, and 14, you would see 
that Jesus repeatedly uses this phrase, this idea of those who have been given to him by the Father. In fact, 17 times in this prayer, Jesus uses the verb give or gave or given, eight times referring to those who had particularly been given to the Son by the Father. Why is this significant? What does it mean? Jesus is praying for a group of people who have been granted to him by his father. This is a love gift from the father. And so he has a particular attention for these 11 that have been given to him. And these aren't just 11 people or individuals who have just been given to him in human history. The idea when we when we look at the whole prayer is these are those who have been given to him from all eternity. That there was never a time when the Father had not given them to the Son. But notice who Jesus does not pray for in verse 9. I pray for them. I do not pray for whom? The world. I do not pray for the world. And so if we're going to understand who he's not praying for, we should probably understand what does he mean by the world, particularly in this prayer. The word world is used at least 18 times in this prayer. The word cosmos or world. Um, Now, we know that Christ does not tell us elsewhere that we should never pray for our enemies, right? We're told we're commanded to pray for our enemies. Christ prayed for his enemies. Even on the cross, he's going to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Correct. But here, the night before his death, He does not pray for the world, whatever that means. And if you look at these 18 uses of world just in this chapter, we can make some summary statements about what this entity is, what this thing called the world is. We can determine right here from this verse that the world is in contrast to the them. Correct. I pray for them. Therefore, the world is not the them. It's not the 11. It's in contrast to the 11. We can also see in this verse that whoever the world are, they have not been given to the son by the father. Correct. The them has been given to the son by the father, but the world has not been given to the son by the father. So they're not given to the son. They're not shared by the father or the son. If you look at verse 10, we'll look more at this here in a moment. But all mine are yours and all yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. This is particularly talking about the leaven. So it's to be contrasted with the world. Later in the prayer, he says that the world has hated them. The world has hated the eleven. So whoever the world is, uh, it's personal. They hate They hate the disciples. Why do they hate the disciples? Because the disciples are not of the world. They are distinguished from it just as Christ is distinguished from it. So we can say that the world hates Christ and his followers. So in summary, and then then last of all, the world has not known you. If you look at, um, I believe it's the last verse in the prayer, the world has not known you actually verse 25 oh righteous father the world has not known you so in summary we can say that the world is not given to the son it is not shared 
by the Father and the Son. It hates the disciples. It hates Christ. And it has not known you or the Father. Does this sound like a positive or a negative description of the world? Negative, right? And so the prayer is for his own, his 11, but it is not for the world. Whatever the world is, it is in contrast to the 11. Does it seem like we're stretching anything? No. And so he prays for those who have been given to him by the Father. We'll spend a little bit more time in the next sermon, seeing that there is hope for those in the world who come out of it, that is. After all, we were all part of the world at one time, correct? But there is no hope for the entity of the world itself. The world is, in, is completely opposed to the disciples, the Son, and the Father, and is, in fact, the pool of the evil one. As John says in 1 John 5.19, the whole world lies under the control of the wicked one. We're going to talk more about the devil here in a moment. This is what leads D.A. Carson to say about this section of the prayer. The world can be prayed for only to the end that some who now belong to it might abandon it and join the others who have been chosen out of the world. And so the son prays for those given to him by the father out of the world, but he does not pray for those who own the world. Which brings us to our second question, and that is, why them? Why does he pray for them? Let's look at, again, verses 9 and 10. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Why do I pray for them? For they are yours and all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Why does he pray for these particular ones? Because they are the personal common property of the father and the son. Again, look back at the text. They are yours. Why am I praying for these 11? Because, Father, they're yours. And by the way, you've given them to me, so they're mine. And all mine are yours. And so there's this common sharing of ownership of this group of 11 called the disciples, where the Father and the Son have a common property between them. They're the personal property of the Father and the Son. And so... He prays for them because there's an interest that the father and the son have in these 11 as opposed to the world. Let's ask a third question. Why now? Why is Jesus suddenly praying this now? He's spent three years with the disciples. Um, If you go all the way back to chapter 13, he's been teaching the disciples all kinds of wonderful things. Uh, truths about the Holy Spirit and abiding in Christ, about how he's going to prepare a place for them. And so why does he decide to pray this now? Let's look at verse 11. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world and I come to you. Why does he pray this now? Because the son will no longer be in the world, but his disciples will remain in the world. 
And as we've seen, is the world a good thing? No, according to this verse, the world is not a wonderful pool to swim around in. It's a cesspool. And it is fraught with dangers. And Jesus knows that he's about ready to move out of this thing. He's, he's no longer going to be in the pool of the world, as it were, with him. And so he's asking the Father to be their lifeguard. He's moving out of this thing that hates him. He's leaving his disciples in an environment that hates them. And so he says, Father, I want you. We'll see here in a moment what he's going to ask for. I'm praying for them that are left behind in this this pool, in this environment that is caustic, that hates me, that hates you, that hates them. Which brings us to the actual request. We're moving pretty quick, so you guys are probably getting excited. <laughs> Don't get too excited, because we're going to slow down here in a moment. The next question is this. For what does the son pray? And we get this in verses 11 and 12, but we're also going to peek a little bit at verse 15, because like a good Jewish prayer, this prayer kind of cycles in on itself. Sometimes it feels like Jesus is talking in circles. He goes from one topic and then comes back to it, just like you see in the book of First John. For what does the son pray? Let's look at verse 11 and 12, and then also a little bit of verse 15. For now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Here's the main verb of the request there's really only one request in this section holy father keep through your name those whom you have given me that they may be one as we are while i was with them in the world i kept them in your name those whom you gave me i have kept and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled And then look at verse 15. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should what? Keep them from the whom? Evil one. So the main verb, the the main request in this section is that the father would keep them. Everybody say that. Keep them. So let's look back at verse 11 again. Holy Father, keep through your name. And then there's some debate about how we should take the rest of the verse. It's either keep through your name those whom you have given me or keep through your name the name through the name that you have given me. Right. We'll talk about that here in a second. Um, Those and that they may be one as we are. And then he talks about his own keeping ministry in their lives. Verse 15, keep them from. The evil one. So what is what is the main prayer request verb? It is to keep, protect, um, hold them, uh, keep them safe. So Jesus is leaving the pool, as it were, in his humanity. And he's now looking to the father and saying, Father, I know that I have preached your word throughout um, the years of my ministry here. But I'm asking that you would keep them in your name now if you look at verse 12 jesus actually has 
in his life answered his own prayer request. He's asking the Father to keep them, but what did Jesus do while he was on the earth? Look at verse 12 again. While I was with him in the world, I was in the cesspool with him, what did he do? I kept them in your name, right? Um, Those whom you gave me, there it is again, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition. We'll talk about that here in a moment. So Jesus prays to the Father to keep them, and he says, by the way, I've kept them. I've done my job as the son. Now I'm giving them back to you and asking you to do your job as Father to keep them from the influences of the world and the evil one. Which brings us, we're going to kind of move to our fifth and final question, and this is where we're really going to plant down. So he's asking them to be kept. Um, But how is the son asking them to be kept? How does the son pray that they should be kept? And that's really what kind of the rest of this section deals with is uh, the son prays for those given to him that they would be kept through various means. And the first means seems to be through the power of the father's name through the power of the Father's name. So let's let's rehearse this again. Verse 11, the main verb request is, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them, what? In your name. Um, and none of them is lost. So, so he's praying that they would be kept in the name of the Father. What does that mean? Whenever I hear this terminology about the name and in uh, the name of God or uh, the doctrine of the name in the Old and New Testament, I always get confused. I have to go back and look at all my old notes from seminary or commentaries and things like that. I don't know about you, but I, I, I still to this day get confused when the Bible makes a big deal about the name, do you get confused or is that just me? What does that mean to be kept in or by the name? We don't normally talk in those kind of terms, right? Katie has never said when I've left the house with Samuel to go on some hike to some wilderness forsaken area, she's never said, now make sure Mike, that you keep Sam in your name, right? I'd be like, what, what does that mean? I have no idea. But Jesus is praying that the Father would keep his 11 in his name. Well, I think we have a little bit of a clue of what Jesus means just by the way he kicks, he starts off this verbal request. How does, he, how does he introduce it in the middle of verse 11? How does he refer to um, the first person of the Trinity? Say it again. Holy Father. All right, so we get a little bit of a clue. Holy Father, um, keep them in your name or keep them by the power of your name. Holy has the idea of separation, hallowedness, right? Um, There can be a transcendency aspect of holy. Father seems to communicate this intimacy, this compassion, uh, this uh, imminency. And so keep them in your imminency and your transcendence. Keep them in your compassion and your hollowedness. 
Um, you are the Holy Father. Keep them in your character as it's been revealed throughout the Bible. It kind of harkens back to uh, the section where Moses, remember God, uh, Moses had asked God to reveal himself and to reveal his, reveal his glory. And, and the Lord says, I'm going to cause all of my glory to pass before you, but I'm going to hide you on the rock and I'm going to proclaim my name to you. There's a clue. And so if you, you can flip back there if you wish, or you can just listen to me read it. Exodus chapter 34, God declares his name to Moses. And here's what he says. This is Exodus 34, verse 5. You can write this down. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, Moses, there, and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Okay, he's going to proclaim his own name. What does he say? And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Here's what he says. The Lord, that is Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh God. Okay. Merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So when Yahweh wants to declare his name to Moses, he hides him in the rock. What does he do? He says, Yahweh Elohim. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim. And then he goes off on all of these descriptors, all these words to kind of flesh out this Yahweh Elohim. And what comes out is mercy, graciousness and holiness. It's kind of like the holy stuff. Actually, it's all holy, but kind of like the spooky stuff is on the back end of the name, right? When he says, by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting iniquity upon visiting the sins upon the children of the third and fourth generation. That's kind of the spooky stuff on the front end is God is uh, gracious. He's merciful, gracious, long suffering, abounding right in goodness and truth. And he forgives sin, iniquity and transgression and by no means clears the guilty. It's almost like Holy Father. It's this way, right? It's like that description. It's Father Holy when you look at the way he describes himself here to Moses. And so there seems to be this idea that Jesus is praying that, first of all, that he would have this keeping power, that he would keep his disciples by keeping them within God's character, all that he is. And he says, by the way, I've kept them in your name. I've reminded them. I think this is what we could say. Jesus could say, while I've been on the earth, while I was in the cesspool, I reminded them that you are a compassionate God. You're gracious. You're merciful. You're long suffering, abounding in mercy, forgiving iniquity, transgression, so on and so forth. But by no means just sweeping sin under the carpet and letting all the consequences of sin disappear. Right. I've reminded them that you are a God of cause and effect and that we need to not be deceived thinking that we can sow to the flesh and not reap of the flesh. But I've reminded them that as somebody will just humble themselves a little bit and confess their sin, that you are gracious and kind and everything that you do is good and truthful. Jesus throughout his ministry, says, I've kept them in who you are. 
that you primarily reveal, reveal yourself as a gracious God, but for those that would harden themselves against you like Pharaoh, for those that would resist you like Balaam, you will not sweep their sins under the carpet. And so this is part of the keeping power. How are we to be kept uh, in the cesspool? Is Jesus is praying to the Holy Father to throw some floaties out there, so to speak. Throw them the floatie of your name. Throw them the floatie of who you are, that you are the Holy Father. May they be reminded constantly of how gracious you are. And wouldn't the disciples need that kind of reminder? Wouldn't they need that kind of reminder as they're about ready to just take off on Christ? They're about ready just to take off and be completely assaulted by the devil. Remember, the devil said to Jesus, uh, he's asked to sift Peter as wheat. But Jesus says, I've I've prayed for you. And so that's that's part of what's being asked here is that is that they would be kept in the power of of the name, the holy name of the father. But notice um, what's to result here. Keep them through your name. Those whom you've given me, with what result? That they may be one as we are. Keep them safe in this pool through your name. We're going to throw the floaty of your name out. Remind them all you are. What what should result? That they would be one as we are. We're going to talk more about this April 7th in the next message, but I do want to comment a little bit. What does it mean that they would be one as we are? He's praying for their safety. He's praying that the Father would keep them safe with the result that they would be one just as the Father and the Son are one. And so what does he mean by this oneness, this concept? I want you to turn back to John 10, verse 28. Because we see all throughout John, we see the same kind of idea of oneness between the Father and the Son. And frequently, when we see the oneness of the Father and the Son, the concept of security and safety is also right there in the context. So I want you to see this for yourself. Notice what it says in John 10, verse 28. Jesus says, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. This sounds just like what Jesus prays in 1712. I've kept them. My father who has given them to me, does that sound familiar, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. What does this mean in this context when Jesus says, I and my father are one? I think it's pretty clear. I, I've got, yeah, yeah, Brian, I've got. These disciples will never perish. I've got them in my hands. The father who's greater than I has them in his hands. And I and the father are one. And if we're unified in the purpose of keeping them in our hands, what can possibly snatch them out of our hands? We are one. They are within the double grip of the father and the son. And so now to look back there at the prayer 17. 11, Father, keep them through your name, whom you, have, whom you have given me, that they may be what? One, just as we are. We're one in our purposes, 
and they're going to be one within the fold of our purposes. I believe that's what he's talking about. We'll flesh this out more as we get to the latter half of the chapter. And so the keeping power, one of the floaties, as it were, one of the uh, uh, safety nets is, is the name of the father. Now, what about this section here where it says, uh, verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. So I, I did my job while I was here. Those whom you gave me, I've kept. None of them is lost. It'd be nice to put a little period there. But what is he going to say? Except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. Who is this son of perdition? And why is he lost? Well, we know from the context that the son of perdition is Judas, right? So we've got this 11 who have all been given to the father. They're supposedly in this this vice grip of oneness between the father and the son. So how is it that one of them gets out of this supposedly impenetrable vice grip of the father and the son? Yeah, that's part of the answer. Scripture has been fulfilled. But also, what is he called? He's called is he called the son of God? No, he's called the son of what? Perdition. This is someone who is a son of damnation. Um, when we look at the full scope of Scripture, Judas is called a devil. Now, remember back in John 6, Peter, right after Peter has this great pronouncement, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, Peter makes this incredible pronouncement about their belief in Christ. He's representing, he thinks, all 12 of the disciples. You would think that Jesus would just stand up and applaud and just say, this is so awesome. Jesus, as he often does, says the unexpected right after Peter's pronouncement. He says, did I not choose you, the 12, and one of you is a devil? I wouldn't expect that kind of statement to come right after such an incredible pronouncement from Peter. One of you is a devil. And then John tells us as a gloss, he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the, uh, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him. Then when you look at chapter 3 or 13, Jesus seats Judas in the second highest honorable place in the room in all likelihood gives him the sop, which is a, is a place, a thing of honor, dips the bread after he had already washed the feet of Judas. So threefold opportunities for Judas to repent. And what does Judas do? He goes out into the night to betray the son of God. And verse 27 of chapter 13 says Satan entered him. Satan entered him. This is a, a guy who is not one of the 12. This is a guy who is one of the world. He is one of the guys that's probably down underneath trying to pull people down. No doubt, right? He was trying to pull Christ down, trying to pull the disciples away. Son of perdition, son of damnation. The sad thing about this prayer is there are 11 who hear it. There's one who never hears this prayer. Think about it. I mean, John, Peter, Andrew, all of the disciples, they're in earshot. They hear Jesus praying this prayer out loud. Where's Judas? 
Never hears it. He had dismissed himself when he went out to betray the Son of God. So we have seen how those given to the Son by the Father are kept in and through the name of the Father. Given to the Son. You know, if we if you walk down a busy street, not, not too long ago, I was walking down Sunnymead past Hecock towards Indian. I was with my son and uh, my son, Samuel. And I suddenly I began to realize it's kind of dangerous out here. <laughs> I haven't done, gone for a walk down Sunnymead Boulevard in a while, but I'm a little scared. And I told Sam, I said, Dad, I said, Samuel, I want you to stay right next to me. He's all, yes, sir, Dad, I understand. <laughs> He was like, he felt it too. And he got really close to me and I held his hand. So if I'm holding Samuel's hand walking down the street, who has the power? Is it me or him? It's the father, right? That is keeping the son close to him. And it's the father. We're being commended into the father's hands. And he has the power to keep his own from the evil one. And so let's look at the next kind of means or how does the son pray that they should be kept through the joy of just hearing this prayer itself. Look at verse 13. He says, but now I come to you. I'm coming out of the pool. But these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. What does he mean? These things I speak in the world. The very prayer that he's praying right here. He's like these things, this, the things that are in this prayer. I'm praying right now in the world, in the pool. Why? That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. No doubt things that I am praying right now are going to come back to their minds once they return from fleeing like a bunch of cockroaches, right? And the joy is going to well up within them. The joy that Christ prayed for us. Christ prayed for the Father to keep us in his name. We remember those prayers, not just this prayer, but Peter, no doubt, would have remembered what Jesus said to him just a little bit ago when he says, uh, hey, by the way, Peter, uh, Satan's asked to sift you as wheat, but don't worry, I've prayed for you. And when you return, strengthen your brethren. That had to have been a great encouragement to Peter. And so that's another. um, Why am I forgetting the names of those circle things that you throw out into a pool to help somebody? It's a lifesaver. Life preserver. There you go. So it's another life preserver or floaty. I've been using the word floaties. Um, It's a life preserver, right? So you've got the life preserver of the name of Holy Father, of the Father, Yahweh Elohim. And the life preserver of just this joy of knowing that Christ has interceded for his own. And shouldn't that bring us great joy as we consider that Christ didn't just pray for his disciples, the 11, I'm letting the cat out of the bag for April 7th. He's going to pray for us too. And we know from Romans 8 that he always lives to make intercession, right? He intercedes for his saints. And how encouraging should that be? That's something that we can reach out to when we're feeling the pull and the draw of the world, the flesh and the devil, as we look and see that Christ is interceding for us. But then there's also a third means. How does the son pray that they should be kept? Through the truth of the word. Look at verse 14 and following. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. 
By the way, that if you're being hated for your, your beliefs and for your Christianity, you're in good company. The world hates Christ. It's going to hate you. Verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. That kind of recycles back to his original prayer. But now he's adding a negative element. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. He's like, Lord, don't take them out of the pool. I kind of would almost be rather Christ say, yeah, take them, get them out of that pool. Get them out of the world. But there's, there's reasons why the Lord wants to leave us in the world. We won't get into a lot of those reasons now. But one of them is so that we can evangelize, right? We're in the world because people need to hear about Christ. And so the Lord has left us behind to, to share the gospel. We're also in the world so that we can suffer as Christ has suffered and follow in his footsteps of suffering so that when we get to our peace and our rest, we'll have a greater appreciation, right? If there's no guts, no glory, right? No guts, no glory. If, if we go through suffering in this life, we get to the next life, there's greater glory for those that get to rejoice in the Lord's causing us to endure. But look at verse 16. They are not of the world as I am not of the world. He reiterates their position in, re, in respect to this pool. Sanctify them, how? By your truth. What's the truth? Your word is truth. The word sanctify here is the same idea of keeping. It's just another, it's a synonym for keep them. Sanctify them, keep them, set them apart. How? By your word. Um, by all of the things that have been revealed to the prophets through Christ himself um, as he is on the earth, that's going to be written down in scripture um, through your spoken and written word, particularly what's about to occur. And that is Christ's death on the cross is burial and resurrection. So keep them in the gospel, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The gospel is truth. So keep that life preserver of the gospel all wrapped around them that when they're feeling the tug of the world, the flesh and the devil, that it's the teaching and thoughts of the gospel that will be coming to mind. Uh, By the way, we talked about this in the last sermon, but we're looking at this message. We're like, where's the Holy Spirit? Well, he talked a lot about the Holy Spirit in chapter 16. The Holy Spirit's right where he likes to be in this chapter, way in the background. It's the Holy Spirit that's going to bring all these things to their memory. And he's going to enlighten these things and draw their attention to the Father. Draw their, he's, the, the Spirit's going to give them the joy. The Spirit's going to remind them of the Word of God. And so these are part of the means. And then finally, through the sanctification of the Son, look at verse 18 and 19. Um, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So the father sent the son into the cesspool. He's sending them into the cesspool. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself. I set myself apart. Why? That they also might be sanctified by the truth, by the truth of the word, by the truth of the gospel. What does it mean when Jesus says, um, I sanctify <clears throat> myself. I sanctify myself. Well, the root idea here is that <clears throat> he is setting himself apart for a particular purpose. Only Christ could sanctify himself. We need to be sanctified. We can't necessarily sanctify ourselves in the sense that Christ can, but Christ sanctifies himself for a particular purpose. And what's going to happen in chapter 18? 
He's going to get arrested. He's going to go to trial. He's going to go to the cross. And so Christ is looking forward to this idea that I am going to go to the cross. I am going to drink the cup that you have given me. I am going to bear the sins of the world, particularly the sins of those whom I'm praying for, with the result that they would be sanctified by the truth of this gospel. I'm setting myself apart so that they may be kept by the power of my death. That's basically what I think Christ is saying here. And so his overarching prayer is that they would be kept from the influences of the world, from the influences of the devil, and that there are various means he's praying to the Father that they would be kept through uh, his name. He is a holy father. He is Yahweh Elohim. He's praying that they would have this joy as they remember the prayer of Christ. He's praying that they would be kept within the word that is the gospel. And then really the sanctify the sanctifying work of the son really wraps it all up uh, that that Christ's death on the cross <clears throat> would be this thing that just wraps around them as a life preserver. I don't know about you, but just listening to Christ make this prayer and this one request is such an encouragement to my heart. Uh, As you look at the lives of the disciples, these 11 did go out and they were kept. And many of them gave their lives for the gospel as they were kept from the devil, kept from the world and kept from their own flesh. But what about us? I want to ask some questions for prayer and encouragement, perhaps repentance and obedience. Just a few questions here as we wrap up this section of the prayer. If the Son of God felt the need to pray for his disciples, we need to cry out for those people and ministries entrusted to us. Think about it. The Son of God had no mixed motives in his ministry. He preached perfect sermons. I'll guarantee you a couple things. While I've been preaching, I've had mixed motives and I have not preached a perfect sermon. I'll pretty much guarantee you that. But Jesus never has any mixed motives. He always preaches perfect messages. And yet he felt the need to pray to his father that the father would keep his disciples. How much more do we need to pray as as we think of those that are underneath us, our spouses, our children, our relatives, our students, as we serve in this church and show hospitality, as we evangelize, as we disciple, as we even just pass pass out bulletins or as we lead in worship, we need the Lord to enable us. There is nothing that we can really accomplish without his enabling power. I was reading a wonderful quote, in a book called A Praying Life by Paul Miller, who has this to say. He says, until you are convinced that you can't change your child's heart, you will not take prayer seriously. And I was like, I don't know why it took me 50 years to figure that out. I feel like the first like 50 or I don't know how long wait, can we can see my oldest is 18. OK, so like seems it feels like the first 17 years or so of my parenting I felt like if I just preach the word well enough and if I just bang it into them hard enough and if I just guilt them up enough, I can change their hearts and make them love Jesus from the heart. And I just want to tell you, I want to save you guys a lot of time. (laughs) I'm laughing and crying at the same time. Um, It doesn't work. Um. 
the Lord is so much more powerful and and we can if we just cry out to him, he is the one that wants to enable our ministries. Um, whatever your ministry is, whoever it is the Lord is calling you to minister to, we need to pray. Christ needed to pray. We need to pray. Um, also, we could just ask this. What are your chances against the devil um, if you go MMA against him one-on-one with no outside assistance? I'll just tell you right now, you have no chance whatsoever. The devil is smart. The devil is powerful. He's been doing this for a long time. This thing that we call this pool, it's his. He is the God of this world. It has been put underneath his jurisdiction. John MacArthur has listened to him on this passage. He says, you would lose your salvation in a heartbeat if you were not upheld by God. Every one of us in this room, if God just let us go, guess what? You lose your salvation. But the opposite of that is also true. If you're in the grip of the son and you're in the grip of the father, guess what? You are unpluckable. You cannot be plucked out of the father's hand. Ask yourself also this question. How should the facts that we believers have been given to the son by the father and are their shared personal property impact our outlook and view of ourselves? If we've been given to the, um, the son by the father and we are the shared property of the father and the son and we're in this double grip thing and we are one in the father and the son as they are one, how should that affect our view? Think about that. We're, we are within the keeping power of the Trinity. You know, if the, one of the things the devil would just love to do is to get a true, honest, goodness, born-again Christian to fall away. He goes to Job and he says to Job, God, the only reason he worships you is because you just bless him all the time. Stop blessing him all the time and he'll curse you to your face. So the father says, you're on. I'm, I'm, I'm going to allow you to take away these material blessings. But guess what? Double grit, baby. Didn't happen. Devil comes and says, I want to take Peter out. I'm going to sift him. Jesus says, okay, I'm praying for him. It's on. Peter survives. Time after time, you see the devil doing his best to assault God's people. And time after time, you see basically what Jesus says comes fulfilled. The father has given them to me. He is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my hand. As we, say, as we saw in John 10, I and the Father are one. I love this quote from the Schofield Reference Bible. Jesus Christ is God's love gift to the world. And believers are the Father's love gift to Jesus Christ. It is Christ who commits the Christian to the Father for safekeeping so that the believer's security rests upon the Father's faithfulness to his Son, Jesus Christ. If your security and my security depends upon the father's faithfulness to a son, Jesus Christ, is the father going to be faithful to his son? Absolutely. And there's no possibility it could be otherwise. Another question. Imagine being with the disciples and having Christ pray this prayer for you. Just imagine being Peter, being John being one of the disciples, and you hear Christ praying out loud 
for you? How would that make you feel? Do you know that we can enjoy that same feeling right now? One, because we're reading this prayer. We're reading this prayer that's been recorded for us through the Apostle John by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we're hearing this morning, we're hearing this prayer. But not only that, we know that Jesus intercedes on the behalf of his children. We've already talked about Luke 22, where Jesus tells Peter, I've prayed for you. You know, Anna's six-year-old heart went from terror to an overwhelming sense of safety and security when her mother saved her from the pool. I remember being at the beach one time. I went on a mission trip to Hawaii. Yes, you heard right. I went on a mission trip to Hawaii. (laughs) And I learned a little bit of surfing. I'll say a little bit. And when I got back to Southern California, I decided I'm going to go longboarding out to Huntington Beach because now I'm a longboarder, right? And I went out there by myself, and I got out, and the very first wave that came took my board. You know, longboards, you don't wear an ankle uh, leash. So my board's gone. There was an undertow, and I'm out there a long way. And I, I look, and I could see somebody pick up the board, look out, and I'm like, oh, help. And the guy put the board down and walked away. And I'm just like, oh, no. (laughs) Well, I'm still standing here. As you know, I survived. But it was very frightening, and it took a while to get in, and the current took me way down. I had to walk way down back to my board. But I wonder if that guy's still alive, thinking that he left somebody out there to drown. And if his conscience is stricken. I don't know. I hope they're not here. Um, (laughs) But, you know, maybe... I don't know about you, but there's times in my life where I felt like that's what the Lord was doing to me. And the devil will tempt us sometimes to think that, oh, yeah, Jesus has prayed for you, but he's just walking off. He's going to let you go. But we need to, to look to Christ. Perhaps you have been uh, left to drown by people in your life who should have been there to protect you. Look to Christ. He prays for his children and he is strong. Even if others in your life have let you down, he is strong. Perhaps you're drowning now and you wonder where Christ is. Look to Christ. Believe what we have been talking about this morning. Believe even just a little bit. He is a kind Savior, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding, In goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. He will clear your guilt if you will admit it and if you will confess it. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. May us end with this. Do we understand the dangers that lurk about us daily. Jesus does. If our eyes could only be opened, we would see that we are in the deep end of the pool. We are in this thing that Jesus calls the world. And the world is an environment that is not neutral. It seeks to suck you under. 
It seeks to swallow us up. Not only that, there is a devil that wants to jump on our backs and thrust us down. And as we said before, there's this remaining sickness in all of us. And as bizarre as it seems, sometimes we're attracted to the bottom of the pool. Sometimes we want to take off our floaties or throw aside. Um, what do you call those things again? Life preservers. The floaties and life preservers. If we could see the constant danger we are in amidst the world, the flesh, and the devil, we would cry out moment by moment for help. And we would see that we have a great Savior who has prayed a great prayer. And who always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus did not... Jesus did not leave his disciples alone without safety, and he does not leave you alone. He does not leave his own alone without the secure embrace of the Father and the Son. Let's pray. If we could have our ushers and greeters come forward for the offering and our team. Lord, we call you Savior. We ask that like a shepherd, you would lead us with your tender care. In thy pleasant pastures, feed us for our use. Thy folds prepare. Blessed Jesus, thou hast brought us, has bought us, thine we are. Mine are days that God has numbered. I was made to walk with him, yet I look for worldly treasure and forsake. I forsook the King of Kings. But mine is hope and my Redeemer. Though I fall, his love is sure. For Christ has paid for every failure. I am his forevermore. Lord, we thank you so much for this wonderful prayer that we have been able to survey. And we ask that your spirit would work it in our hearts. We are not um, so ignorant to think that just because we have discussed various concepts that they would make their way into our hearts and achieve change. But we are dependent upon you and your spirit to cause any heart change in us through the preaching of your word. And so we pray that you would do so. We pray, Lord, that you would protect us from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Lord, that you would cause us to endure. Lord, that you would keep us safe in your Father's hands and in your hands. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and all God's people said, Amen.